Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway. Well, hi there, and welcome to the Speedway Show. Today, our topic is seven reasons you're stuck. Are you in a job you hate? Are you in a relationship with a man or a woman you just don't like that much? Are you still single and wondering why you're not married yet? Do the same problems plague you year after year after year? Well, this show is for you. Now, you heard at the uh, outset my um, intro where uh, Ben, the, the voice that you hear, said uh, that the Spiro Show is an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply. Yes, that is true. In addition, uh, I aim to do that by improving the quality of our personal, professional, and spiritual relationships because life is all about relationships. Today we are taking a look at why we might be stuck in the mud and can't seem to break free in any of a number of areas of your life. And I'm I'm going to give you these ideas, and it's not prescriptive, right? So this is not me saying you're stuck because, as much as it is that these are some reasons why people commonly get stuck. And what I want you to do with this information is, if you're feeling like you're in a rut in a particular place, uh, let's say you feel like you've been in the same dead-end job for years, and you just hate it, and for years you've hated it and you've complained about it, but you're still there. These are things that I want you to to think about with regard to why you might be stuck and give you some ideas for how to get unstuck. Reason number one, ungratefulness. One reason we get stuck is because we are too ungrateful and too fearful to see the true opportunities in front of us, despite what may sometimes be the miracle of how far we have come, we turn right around and run back the way we came. The best story I know that illustrates this point really well is the story of the Israelites in my life manual, which happens to be the Bible. Now, Um, you might be thinking, well, if you haven't listened to this show before, gee, why do you call it a life manual? I call it a life manual because it does the same thing that a product manual does when you purchase a product. It gives you guidelines on how best to live your life. It tells you what not to do with your life, just like a product will tell you, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. It also tells you how to troubleshoot if you run your life off into a ditch, right? Same thing that a product manual does. And uh, we, as human beings, have the best life manual of all. Now, other people, the other reason I call it a life manual is because I happen to have friends who use different ones. 
My life manual is the Bible. I have friends who use the Bhagavad Gita. I have friends who use the Quran. And um, I, the, the goal of the show is really not to talk about what, which one's best and which one's good and which one's bad, because I think you can go just about anywhere and find just about anybody who talks about religion talking about what is the best path and why it's the best path. My goal is to simply provide some universal ideas that we can commonly look at and use for the purposes of our lives. So even if you are not into the Bible, you have probably heard that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for some really long time, 400 years. They were finally rescued after God took pity on them after they'd been crying and, 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 and crying out to him for years. And then it still took them 40 years after they were rescued um, through Moses, who led them out of Egypt, uh, it took. It still took them 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness to get to the promised land that 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 God had set aside for them. Right. What you may not have heard is that some religious scholars, and and I'll hasten to say I'm not one of them. Right. So I'm not a pastor. I don't have any religious training. So I'm not talking to you as a pastor with that level of of authority. I'm just talking to you as somebody who goes to church um, and listens and has heard some things and is sharing what I've heard. Some religious scholars say the trek should have only been a two-week journey or an 11-day, 11 to 14-day journey, had they simply followed God's original plan. So why did it take 40 years? Well, I've read the suggestion uh, that part of it was to keep them out of trouble because they weren't equipped to wage war against some of the hostile tribes against against the coastline. Um, actually haven't heard a pastor say that. I found that in one of the, that was, I found that written by a pastor online, but that was the first time I'd heard that reason, but maybe that's true. Um, but the reason God gives them for the journey taking so long is because of all the complaining they did after they left Egypt. So in Egypt, they were enslaved for hundreds of years, right? God feels sorry for them sends Moses, who wasn't really leaping at the opportunity either, right, because he had a stutter and he was a murderer, and uh, so it wasn't like he was a bastion of virtue, right? So anyway, here comes Moses, flawed like you and me, and delivers through God's grace and power the Israelites from Egypt. Now, you would think that once they were delivered, they'd be thrilled and tickled, and they would look back and say, we are never going back there again, and so glad that we have left. Now, during the delivery, they have seen miracles like never before and since then, right? So they saw ten plagues before they even left Egypt. And these are ten plagues that did not touch them. You'll remember the locusts, the frogs, the death of the unborn child, Lots of, you know, the, 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 the water turned to blood, lots of, you know, really kind of gory stuff that didn't hurt them. Uh, so after these ten plagues that were visited, you know, upon primarily upon the non-believers, everybody who wasn't an Israelite, so the Egyptians, for example, God parts the Red Sea so that they can escape from Egypt. And so they cross the Red Sea. The Red Sea is parted. The Egyptian army that's chasing them decides, well, hey, there's a path through the sea. So they follow along, and the waters close over the Egyptians, and the entire Egyptian army is just decimated. And boy, what an embarrassment to Pharaoh, right, who sent the army after the Israelites because he changed his mind after he let them go. Well, the, Egypt, the Israelites didn't have to lift a finger to help 
God do all of this. They didn't help with the ten plagues. They were just the beneficiaries. They didn't help with the um, parting of the Red Sea. It wasn't something they did that caused the Red Sea to close. All they had to do was trip, trap across the dry seabed uh, that God had parted for them. So now they're singing God's praises, and they're so excited, and you would think they would continue. And even then, there were more miracles, and there was actually a miracle with them the whole time because God manifested himself by a cloud in the daytime and a pillow of fire by night so that he could lead them to where they were supposed to go. When the cloud moved, they followed. When it stopped, they rested. If all this sounds intriguing as you're sitting there going, really? I would suggest you go into the Bible and you read it because it's all in there. But despite all of this, right, despite the parting of the Red Sea, despite the miracles we saw in Egypt, despite the fact that God is with them the whole time, what do they do? They start grumbling. Ingratitude, ungratefulness. Well, they were hungry. Well, they were thirsty. They got to a place where there was water, but when they tasted it, it was bitter. So they grumbled about how that charlatan Moses, I can't believe he brought us all the way out here to die. But God was patient, and he gave them sweet water to drink. Another miracle. So off they go again. And then they start grumbling. Again, now they're hungry. So God sends them manna. Fresh from the heavens every day. Sounds like it was some sort of bread-like food, kind of sweet. But to help it down, he also, because then, of course, they start grumbling because they, they don't have any meat. So he also sends them quail. Woo! You would think they were happy then, right? We got water. We got manna every day. Fresh from heaven, no less. We've got quail sent by God. Wow! They should have been happy then. But no! They kept grumbling. Oh, now we don't have any water again. Great, great, moan, great, great, great. And interestingly, um, the the Israelites actually did get close enough to the promised land to actually send scouts there to look at it. Off go the scouts, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They come back. Eleven of them are trembling with fear. Now, remember, this is the, the, the land that God already promised these people, right? So they come back. And of the 12, 11, no, in fact, I think it was 10, trembling with fear. There were two of them, one of whom was Caleb, who said, well, hey. You know, and the reason they were afraid was they were like, oh, child, you should have seen the people over there. They are giants. They are huge. They're going to annihilate us. There is no way that we're going to be able to battle those people and win. I think we better go home. And uh, the other two, of whom Caleb was one, said, hey, God promised the land. We can take them. And... But a near mutiny then breaks out, and the Israel, the Israelites wanted to, to cast out these two idiots who don't know what they're talking about. They wanted to get rid of Moses and his sidekick Aaron. They wanted to find a new leader. And by the way, they wanted to go back to slavery. So, you know, finally, after all of this nonsense, God gets really fed up. And so according to the Bible, he then says, Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as, the glory of God fills the whole earth. Not one of those who saw my glory and, and the signs I performed in Egypt and the earth, not one of those, oh wait, I just repeated them myself. Not one of them, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised 
on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. So that was why they never made it to Egypt. Ungratefulness, griping, grumbling, and on and on. And finally God says, okay, I've had it. None of y'all are going to go see the promised land. All of you who complained, so this is why, they had to wander around in the desert because that entire generation had to die off. Now, a wise man once said, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Well, sometimes, as was the case with the Israelites, the journey of two weeks takes 40 years because of ingratitude. Now, how does this translate for you and me? You are the Israelite. I am the Israelite. Sometimes that is one reason we get stuck in our situations. We get delivered from something horrible, or we are almost delivered from a bad situation, but then we get scared. We get scared of the unknown. We are afraid to be alone. We are afraid to be unemployed, to be whatever it means to step out of that comfort zone, and we get to grumbling about how the journey is too hard and what the heck anyway, and we go running back even if it means remaining enslaved by the Egyptians. So if you think about it in the context of your job, maybe you have had opportunities to look for other jobs. Well, if you're sitting someplace where you have Internet access, especially when you're in the United States, you've got 101 places where you can go search for a job, right? But you're still in the same yucky job that you've been in all this time. Have you applied? Have you made efforts to make your situation better in the job that you have? My favorite motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar, says the best way to get a new job is to be excellent at the job you have because one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to be promoted into another job or at least you're going to be paid more money then you are being paid now for the job that you are doing, or somebody else is going to give you the promotion and the job because they see the work that you are doing. And so his view is if you really hate your job, what you should do is you should do it really well, and you should just make it a bang-up job, and that way that is your fastest, best ticket out of the job. So you can't even say, well, gee, I can't find another job because the market's bad, right? You can always do better. You can always excel. You can always impress in the job that you have. And before you know it, regardless of what's happening in the marketplace, regardless of what's happening in your job environment, there will be other opportunities that open themselves up for you. But you got to do it. you got to take the steps. you got to listen. you got to try. And you got to work on it. And you have to excel. And if you're not going to do that, then at the very least you need to be out there searching for another job. And if you're searching for a job, Eight hours is what you ought to be spending on job searching, especially if you don't have one. And even then, um, if you read uh, job searching books, they'll tell you that if you're searching for eight hours every day, it's still going to take you in a good market three months to find a job. So when you think about that kind of thing and when you think about what Zig Ziglar has said about job hunting, just how much have you worked to try and get yourself out of that situation or are you just sitting there grumbling? And if you're sitting there grumbling about how you don't like your job, chances are you might not be doing it terribly well because there will be other people who can see your attitude, and they wouldn't want to give you a promotion either because they can see that you're not doing this one particularly well. So it's a virtual, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? And it's part of why we end up getting stuck. It is uh, examples of getting stuck. It's 
the woman who keeps running away from a bad relationship will need to turn around and go back the next day in the hope that it's going to get better. Um, it's the toxic coworker who comes to work every day complaining and spreading their hatred and dissatisfaction like a cancer. If it's not you, then you might know somebody like this at your job. But and, and what you might really be thinking is, I'd really like you to go find another job because I'm unhappy with you being here too because you're unhappy, you're making everybody else unhappy, and it sucks. But they won't quit. He won't quit. He won't take any steps to make the job behave better. And so there you all sit being um, bombarded by his negativity, and then it kind of um, makes everybody else's job experience bad too. If that's you, think about too the impact that you might be having on your coworkers, and stop it. Find a solution. Reason number two, it's comfortable. Here's another tale of interest. You may never have heard of King David, also found in the Life Manual. Well, long before he was king, he was a young man who was hated by the then king, Saul, who was jealous of David and made it his life's mission to capture and kill him. So David spent an awful lot of his early years just running and hiding from Saul for his life, literally. At one point, he goes and he hides in this cave, and he wants to stay there until God tells him how he's going to deliver him from Saul. But along comes this prophet um, and tells him that he needs to leave this stronghold and go to the land of Judah. Um, You know, once upon a time, I had a divorce client who resolved everything uh, with his soon-to-be ex-wife, except the custody of Mims the cat. Mims was 13, which is old for a cat. Mims belonged to the wife before they got married. Mims had cancer and was on her way out. Should have been put down, really, um, but they couldn't bear to let the cat go. Well, these two um, divorced, well, divorcing individuals fought like a young cat and a dog over Mims. And at the end of the day, what I finally figured out was it wasn't about the cat. It was about the fact that if they resolved the issue of what would happen to Mims, the marriage would be over. And both of them were afraid of taking that final step, even though both of them, to some degree or another, really wanted out of the marriage. Well, even though, uh, back to David, uh, even though if we if we think about David in the cave, and we apply it to Mims the cat. So we've got my client who's sitting in his cave, and it's dank and dark and musty and smelled like, you know, bad droppings and um, uh, sick cat. My client had still found a place of safety and comfort in that cave, just like even though uh, David's cave wasn't the place where he belonged. And it probably did smell like bad droppings, and it was probably cold and dank and uncomfortable to some degree, but it was still a place of safety for David, and he just sat there and said, okay, God, I'm not leaving until you tell me what to do. And so it took a prophet to come and say, okay, come on now. You need to get out of here. This is not where you belong. You need to go down yonder to the other place where God has for you. And and it took, you know, the prophet sort of kicking him in the behind to say, come on, get out of the cave. And that was the same thing with my client. I finally had to sit down with him and say, okay, look, I get that this is not about the cat, but you can't fight over the cat in perpetuity, and I, as your lawyer, certainly have no interest in fighting over the cat in perpetuity when we both know that it's not about the cat 
You don't really want the cat. You didn't take care of the cat when you were married. Matter of fact, I seem to remember you saying you didn't even like the cat. So quit fighting over the cat. Let the cat go because you need to move forward with your life. And since this is the path that you have chosen, then you need to face whatever it is that life has outside without your wife, without your family, in the same way that it had been for so long that you knew, and you have to get out there and do it. So he did. The only thing he could do. You know, he he had to let go of the cave, and sometimes we are like that. We find a cave. It's not great, but it's familiar, and it's still safer than the unknown, right? And we stay there. We might complain that the light fades when the sun goes down, it's cold, sometimes the bats are bothersome as they come and go, but we stay in that icky place because it's familiar and because whatever is out there that we have to walk into is frightening. I think the worst thing about staying in the cave isn't even the cave itself. It's what the cave prevents you from doing while you're in it. So if you're in your job cave, you're holding on to that rotten job, you can't, it means you can't move on to the one that really lights your fire. You can't move on to the one where you are um, truly being, uh, uh, truly able to flex your personal, professional muscle in all of the ways that you have skills to do. And so that's the biggest problem with the cave. Because you keep going back to that bad relationship with that person who doesn't appreciate you, doesn't meet your needs, takes you for granted, you you are not able to put yourself in a position to meet the one who does see you for the wonderful creation that you are and who will make you happy. Um, so that was another reason. Reason number three, fear of success. We are afraid of succeeding sometimes more than we are afraid of failing. Sometimes we fear the very thing that we want. What if I write the book and it does really well? Will that mean I have to quit my job and travel everywhere promoting it? Well, gee, I just don't have the time. I have family. I have obligations, and I really don't want to lose my job. What if I get fired? Oh, my goodness. Will I have to... Uh, will I will I be able to support my family? Um, what if what if I make millions and millions of dollars? Will people come chasing down after me, trying to get me to give money to all sorts of causes I don't want? Now, this is before you ever even write word one of the book, right? And now you are worried. You haven't even taken a step, haven't put pen to paper. But what are you afraid of? You are afraid of. Success. We fear success. Um, The time that I see it the most frequently is when people are job hunting. Now, you've applied, maybe you've applied to five, ten places. You're convinced that you're such a good fit for the job. And so you start saying things like, ooh, what if I'm offered two jobs? Which one am I going to take? What if I ask for the great benefits package and put them off because they um, don't want to give it to me. What if um, the two jobs come in just one after the other and I take one and then the one I really want comes available and is offered to me and then I can't take it? You know, what if, what if, what if? Now, this is somebody who hasn't even received an interview for either one of these jobs, right? And yet, here you are fussing and fretting already 
over success. What if I succeed? What if I overly succeed? What if I get five offers on my job? Oh my gosh, how am I going to handle that? This is what we do, and we and we and we fret. And because you're so afraid, sometimes you don't you don't apply for that sixth job. And maybe the only job that you were going to get offered anyway was the sixth job. Maybe you stop your job hunt because you want to know how this goes because you don't want to be disloyal to any of them, mind you. Then none of them have offered you anything, so none of them deserve your loyalty at this point, right? And so you stop your job search because, boy, 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 what's going to happen if all these offers come through the door? And sometimes not a single one of them comes through the door. And I have to, I have to admit, I was guilty of this. Ten years into my career, I was moving from Iowa to Minnesota, and I had started applying for jobs, and I started doing exactly that. I started fussing and fretting over, oh, my gosh, you know, what if this job offer comes in and this job offer, and my boss at the time, sweet, sweet man, his name was Russ, um, excellent manager, and Russ says to me, when you, and I've never forgotten it because he was right, he said, until you have a job offer, you have nothing to think about. And he had gone through his own thing where he had wanted to leave the company and he had um, made some, you know, moves to do that. And so he knew from personal experience what that meant. And he said to me, and I'll say it to you guys again, until you have a job offer, you have nothing to think about. Because his point to me was, you might not get the job offer that you think you're going to get. In fact, a lot of times you don't. You don't even get a call back for that one job. You think, oh, this is such a good fit. And so until you have a job offer, you have nothing to think about. Until success comes, you have nothing to think about. Until you've written the great American novel and it's been published and edited and it has sold 50 million copies, you have nothing to think about. Until it's published, you have nothing to think about. There are lots of people that I know who have published books, kept their day job, and need to keep their day job, published multiple books, and still need to keep their day job. Because for many of us, and for many people who write books, there's a just not the New York Times bestseller. And if you don't believe me, look at how short that list is compared to all of the books that you can find on Amazon.com, at Barnes & Noble, at any given bookstore. So many, many of those those books, even when published, don't turn into problems for the authors. The other reason um, that we get stuck is, of course, the opposite, right? Not that we're so afraid that things will work out that we sabotage ourselves, but reason number four, fear of failure. I am so afraid of failing that I'm not even going to try. I'm so afraid I'm not going to get another job. I'm not even going to apply. So I'm going to sit here and gripe about the job that I do have. Um, I am so afraid that I will never find love again that I'm going to sit here with this horrible boyfriend that I really don't like, and in fact, I'm going to agree to marry him if he proposes to me because that is better than going out there and risking never being loved or risking being alone, right? Because I'm so afraid of failure, I'm not going to step out and take a chance on this wonderful invention that I have thought of on this wonderful idea I have for this book, I'm not even going to write it because I'm afraid that I'm going to try it, I'm going to fail. I have this idea for um, a whole different job for myself. 
I have this idea for developing and creating my own wealth through my own company, but I'm so afraid that it might not work out, and I don't want to let go of my current job only for it to fail, so I'm not even going to try. Fear of failure is something that holds a lot of us back, and is a lot of the reason why some of us may be stuck, or we may take two steps in and feel afraid of that, and then we stop. So fear of failure is another reason. Are you really afraid of failing, and that's why you haven't taken a chance? That's why you haven't taken the steps in your job to do better when you knew that you could. That's why you haven't taken the opportunities that you saw for yourself were there, but you didn't take them because you were afraid that somebody might laugh at you and you might fail. Reason number five, distraction. Sometimes we intentionally or unintentionally allow ourselves to get distracted from what we should be doing, and we go off on a side road and do something that's absolutely a waste of the precious time that we should have spent on something constructive. What is the biggest waste of time known to modern man? There are many, many people who would say it's television. As a matter of fact, there have been studies that have been done, and I can't cite one to you at the moment, but there have been studies that have been done that equate the amount of TV watching hours to the level of success a person has. For example, um, there have been studies that have shown that actually the lower in level an employee is in a company, the more hours of mindless television that they watch. The higher up the rung they go. So when you, by the time you get from, you know, the lower level employee to the vice president to the CEO. The higher up that ladder you go, the less television, mindless television they watch. And oftentimes, if they're watching television at the top level, it is because they're looking for educational, informational um, content that is going to help them with their job. And perhaps that's why when I travel, the the channels that I see all over the world are things like CNN um, and news channels, because a lot of times the kinds of people who typically would be doing the traveling are the kinds of people who want to know what's going on in foreign affairs. They're concerned about what's going on in the market in the United States and in different countries, what's happening with the FTSE 100, which is the U.K. version of, um, which is the U.K. stock exchange, because they want to see how their, their companies might be impacted. And they're also most likely, people at the higher levels are also most likely to watch educational videos. Let me learn about how my product works. So I'm going to get these DVDs. I'm going to get these videos. I'm going to download this content to see how the products and, 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 and services that we sell in the market are, are going to be uh, doing in the marketplace or how they're designed. So sometimes we get distracted. If you're coming home and you're spending, you know, five, even eight, ten hours of uh, any given day watching television, then you are being distracted and there are things that you should be doing and could be doing instead. That is how easily distracted we get. Um, Last summer, for example, this is my distraction story, I undertook a project to write a book. And it just so happened, though, that I happened to own a motorcycle. Well, when you go on your motorcycle, um, if you have one, you may find that actually you're one of those people who's gone for hours because it's so much fun. That's what I did. 
I would say, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to ride around for an hour. Well, I'd come back and it was bedtime. Then I'd come, I'd put my bike in the garage, and I'd go, okay, I'm not going to do it. Uh, tomorrow, then tomorrow, the weather was so beautiful, I'd ride around for an hour, I'd be gone until bedtime. Needless to say, the whole summer went by, and I did not make as much progress on my book as I should have. I could have finished it, but I didn't. So this year, I put down the motorcycle, sat down, worked on the book. I actually finished it. So now I'm taking the next steps, and, and I don't know if it will be published or not, but we'll see. So this is what distraction looks like. It's the thing that you do instead of the thing you should be doing. And it can take lots and lots of different avenues. It's going out to party when you know you should be sitting at work getting your work done. It is um, hanging out with your friends, doing things with different people, doing different things. It's going out on a, a date, on a first date and another first date, and another first date because you have access to an endless supply of first dates on the Internet when actually maybe you should be sitting at home taking care of what's going on in the house because you've got things that you need to do. So that is what distraction looks like. Reason number six, other people. This is a common one, isn't it? And you know what this looks like. You've got a brilliant idea. You've got this wild thought that you're going to go and become a real estate investor. You have been to the seminar. You bought the books. You drank the Kool-Aid. You are excited. And you come home. You tell your spouse. You tell your parents. You tell your family. And they laugh at you. You tell your kids and they think you're crazy. And so this is why you're stuck in the rut. Because by the time they're done with you, they have convinced you that you'll never amount to anything. You'll never be any good. You're not going to succeed. Why on earth would anybody hire somebody like you to do this and that? Why on earth would anybody put their faith in you to, to give them, you know, this kind of service? And what do you know about it anyway? When was the last time? You worry, why? You're not even, you don't even own your own house. You're renting, and here you are. You want to become a real estate investor? Seriously? And, you're, and you start believing it, right? You start thinking, well, that is true. I've never owned a house. What do I know about home ownership? If I can't even own my own house, how am I going to own a house that somebody else is living in? And what if, what if, oh, then you get back to the fear of failure, right? What if the toilet gets clogged at 2 o'clock in the morning? Who am I going to call? What am I going to do? What if the, the, the roof falls in? What am I going to do? What if there's a storm and, and it floods? I don't have the money to fix it up. Gee, shucks, and before you know it, you've lost your dream, all because of something that somebody else has said to you or things that other people have said to you. Well, three people told me I can't succeed, so surely it must be true. So the thing that I will say about this aspect of being stuck in the rut is be very, very circumspect, especially when you have a new idea about who you tell. Be very careful about not telling too many people. And make sure that the people you do tell are people who are going to be like-minded, who will encourage you, who will think it's the coolest thing. So I told you I'm writing, I wrote this book, right? The only people I told about this book were people that I knew, who's two kinds of people. There are either people that I knew would not discourage me, and there are people that I told intentionally because I wanted to kick some ideas around. Um, I have a friend who is a published author. I have a friend who used to be an agent, a literary agent. So I went and I talked to them because I knew. And both of these people have written books. And so I knew that they understood and they would be encouraging. And not only that, but they gave me phenomenal ideas for what to do and how to get it done. So... 
it wasn't until the book was pretty much done that I started telling more people. And then I told more people because I wanted to make sure that my idea was still sound, which it was. I wanted to make sure that I had people who were going to read it and critique it for me in a focus group. And so I had to tell them because I was going to give them a manuscript to read. So you have to be careful about who you tell. I was able to tell my mom. I was able to tell my sister. And, heck, I could tell my boss because he's the one who suggested I write the book in the first place. And so I told people and only those people that I knew would be encouraging and supportive of my mission. Now, who knows if it, if it, if it quote-unquote, fails, right? And what is failure? Because the success is I actually got the book written. If it's never published, I will probably have it bound for me, and I will always have it on my shelf. And it will always have been a success because I did it. I had this idea. I dared to put it on paper. So do not listen to what other people say, especially if they're going to be negative. And I at least was strong enough that if I had told people, and let's say I told my mom, and instead of being supremely supportive, which she was because she's a published author, um, but had she discouraged me, it wouldn't have stopped me from doing what I knew I wanted to get done. So that's reason number six. Now, the show is called Reason Seven Reasons You're Stuck. Reason number seven is actually the worst reason of all. It is, in fact, the most powerful reason that stops you from doing what you know you should do. Do you know what that reason is? Now, you might be thinking, what could that possibly be? And that reason, I'm even going to give you a drum roll, but that reason is the one that will stop you from being successful every time. What is that reason? It is your self perception. This is all I deserve. I am the Israelite. I have failed. I have no faith. I do not have what it takes. I will be in the wilderness wandering around for the next 40 years because I'm just not good at what I'm trying to do. I am a failure. I have failed at my job. I have failed to make a meaningful impact. I have failed at my marriage. I have failed as a parent, and this is all I deserve, sitting here with nothing to my name. Maybe I was an absentee father to my children, and now I don't feel like I deserve to be happy. Maybe I have failed at my marriage, and I feel like I don't deserve to be ever in a happy relationship. Maybe I have failed at my at one job. Maybe I was laid off, and I feel like life will always be difficult for me. I will never be financially secure. I will never be financially independent because that is just what my lot in life is. You know, I actually get the impression that many mothers in particular carry a lot of guilt about not having been uh, everything that they felt like they should have been, not being the perfect wife, not being the perfect mom, as well as the perfect employee and a perfect hourglass shape to boot. And a lot of moms beat themselves up over the fact that they don't feel in their minds that they are the perfect mom and the perfect this and the perfect that, and they meet all of these expectations. Many, many divorcees carry an awful lot of guilt 
because they feel like they failed at their marriages and now there's some permanent price to pay, like never finding love again, like running off into a new marriage and being unhappy because you didn't take the time to heal. And I confess, though, that this seems to be an issue that plagues women, especially mothers, uh, more than it seems to bother men. I could be wrong about that, but I have to tell you, in all the years that I did divorce work, there are a lot more moms that carried a lot of guilt about what they were doing to their children and all the things that they have failed at compared to men who really were concerned about, gee, what kind of parent have I been? I have sometimes heard men say that, you know, some of them fear being found out. This is something that I think more men, in, uh, uh, in fact, seem to fear compared to women that I've talked to. They are afraid. What if but the people at work discover that I don't know as much as I should about some aspect of my job. What if they realize that the only reason I'm good at my job is because I've got all these direct reports that I'm delegating to and that I'm having make decisions for me? What if, what if, what if? This is all I deserve. I certainly can't go any further. This brings us right back to the story of the Israelites, doesn't it? Even though God had told them he was going to hand them the keys to the promised land, the ten scouts still came back in fear and said, no, we can't do it. Even when you can see the promotion in front of you, there are many people who will still turn away and say, no, I can't do it. Um, those Canaanites and giants, oh, my goodness, I'll be squashed like a bug. My goodness, I can't, I can't hang with the CEOs and the vice presidents. They are all so smart. Never mind the fact that you don't realize that half of them are afraid of being found out, right? So out of the 12, only Jacob and Joshua, the two, said, we can take them. They saw the same thing the other ten saw, but they had a completely different view. So this is what I will leave you with. Not only that, but, you know, if in fact, if you go read the story of Caleb, uh, you will find that not only had he the confidence that they would take the land that was promised to them, but he also asked God for the best part of the promised land for himself and his descendants, the hill country where the grapes were so big it took two men to carry a, a, grape, a, a, a bunch of grapes between them, two strong men at that. He wanted the hill country, and because he had the faith, he got it. Because he saw beyond the, the obstacles, God blessed him with that. So what is your story? The most important conversation that you will ever have is not the conversations with other people who tell you that you can or can't do something. It is the conversation that you have with yourself. It is what you believe about yourself. If you are strong enough in your faith, in yourself, in your ability to get something done, then you are not going to fail. And whatever you are supposed to do with that opportunity will come to you. If you have the strength, to be uh, free, to free yourself for that better relationship, even if it means you're going to be wandering around in the wilderness, improving and working on yourself for the next three years, six years, ten years. If you have the courage to do that, then one day you will find the love that you seek. And if you don't, particularly if you follow uh, the teachings and the guidance of your Heavenly Father and you seek guidance, he will bring to you that person. And if he doesn't bring to you that person, he will create in you the fortitude not to need that. There are certain people who are born with the spirit of singleness. Paul in the Bible was one of them. He didn't need to be married because he was completely content by himself. Jesus, completely content. Well, I don't know if he was completely content 
all the time because it says in the Bible that he suffered every temptation known to man. So I'm sure that means at some point there was some woman that he looked at and he was like, mm, mm, mm. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, his objective in life was not to be married and have children and show us what that looked like. He had a completely different path. So whatever your story is, if you feel like the rut is all you deserve, then you need to change what you're saying to yourself. Uh, You know, are you going to be prepared to go out and get there and, and make like Caleb and ask God to give you the best that he has for you? He is, after all, the father and the owner of all that is. He owns every um, resource in the universe. So at the end of the day, why can't you get what you want? This brings us to the end of our show today. I have a book that I really, really highly recommend you read. It's called Who Moved My Cheese? There's a link to it on the posting for this show. And it is all about how people deal with change. You're going to see yourself in this book. It's a very short read, and it's funny. It will make you laugh, and it will make you point at yourself. It will make you point at your coworkers. It will make you point at people that you know in terms of how we deal with change. But it will also give you the encouragement that you need to change where you are and go and get yourself out of that rut. So until next week, next show, this is Speedway saying whatever you do, move, go in peace, Move out of your cave and go out into the light of a brand new dawn. Thank you for joining us on The Speedway Show. Visit thespeedwayshow.com for content and other episodes. Join the fan page at facebook.com slash thespeedwayshow. And follow Speedway on Twitter at the handle The Speedway Show. Until next week, live well, live fully, and love deeply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.